You're listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Each week, we take a single episode of a science fiction TV series, movie, or audio and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. I'm Simon. And tonight we are looking at a new series here on Fusion Patrol. We're going to be looking at the 1997 BBC series Crime Traveler by novelist Anthony Horowitz. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. After we hear the synopsis of the very first episode, Jeff Slade and the Loop of Infinity. Detective Jeff Slade and his fellow detectives are on a stakeout, surveilling a train station. Their job, to observe a slippery character that they suspect of committing multiple murders, but have no evidence to convict. To the horror of his boss, Chief Inspector Grissom, Slade thinks the suspect has spotted them, and he gives chase, first in the station, and then by motorcycle on the streets of a great metropolitan British city. In the end, the suspect's car plummets several stories into the river, an almost certain death. Slade is going to be cashiered over this one. If only they knew why the suspect was at the station. Police science officer Holly Turner seems to not want to see Slade gone. So secretly she heads home where part of her flat is a time machine. She travels back in time, goes to the train station, and observes the suspect at the train lockers. With that information, she returns to the present, gives the info to Slade, and they discover that locker contained the very evidence needed to convict, if he's even still alive. Slade can keep his job. He's really curious how Holly got that information, and eventually she tells him. She only works for the police to make money to help perfect her father's time machine. Slade doesn't believe it. Slade is called away to the scene of an alleged suicide. Industrialist Guy Lombard has been found dead of a gunshot in a locked room at his home. He was about to make a ton of money at a meeting this very evening. It doesn't seem likely that he'd commit suicide at this time. Some suspicious caterers were trying to escape the scene and have been detained for later questioning by Slade, but they've escaped. Slade goes back to see Holly and he apologizes for his skepticism. He convinces her to demonstrate the time machine. She explains to him how it works. They will go back a random number of hours. They will live through those hours again. They must return to the time machine at exactly the moment they departed. If they fail to do so, they will be trapped in the loop of infinity and relive those hours forever. They must not meet themselves. They cannot change anything. The machine sends them back 10 hours, and Slade immediately starts acting like a bull in a china shop. He confiscates a catering van and clothes, and they head to the Lombard house, posing as the caterers. While Holly tries to pull off the catering, Slade snoops around and learns that Lombard is a complete ass to everyone, and they all might have motive to kill him. Eventually, he witnesses part of the crime and gets shot in the process. He doesn't know who the killer was, but he does know Lombard wasn't in the room alone and that the suicide was staged. Now, as the police are arriving, they must return to the time machine, but their actions trying to flee the scene are suspicious and they are held by the local police for later questioning by Detective Slade. They manage to escape with the police hot on their tails. Once in town, they split up, planning to rendezvous back at Holly's flat. Slade takes a moment to bet on a horse, planning to collect when he returns. 
They make it in the nick of time. And Slade's gunshot wound is miraculously healed. Holly explains that everything resets when they return to the present. Armed now with what he knows, Slade returns to the scene of the crimes and reveals that the murderer is Lombard's business partner. It's a fair cop, and Chief Inspector Grissom is impressed with Slade's detectiving. Slade takes Holly out to a very expensive dinner to thank her and also to try to convince her to let him use the time machine more. Nope, that's never happening, she says. Slade gets one more surprise. His betting ticket is blank. Holly explains, time won't let you cheat. The end. Okay, let me get a little background here before we <clears throat> uh, plow into this. Um, and I mentioned this was by Anthony Horowitz, who... Uh, is a, a novelist of some note. People might know him from a later series of books he did, uh, Alex Ryder, uh, which I think has been made into, well, A, movies, and B, a TV series subsequently. I know he's done some James Bond novels um, for the estate of Ian Fleming. And uh, this was 1997 BBC production. And I, I'm going to admit, this is pretty much all I know about the show because I've, I've, I've sort of avoided it. We, we, we put shows on a list sometimes years in advance, as is the case with this one. And uh, I make sure I can obtain the show. And then uh, I usually watch one or two episodes just to make sure that it's like, yeah, we can, we can work with this. Um, so I have seen the first two episodes. I have and not then seen. Sometimes we just put it off as long as possible. As long as we humanly possibly can. <laughs> um, and I, I, I remember this episode pretty well. I don't remember the second episode. So. I am mercifully uh, in the darkest of the future on this, but I have, I have some thoughts. Um, and um, I don't want to read the Wikipedia entry because I don't want to get spoiled on what happens next. So I'm going to turn it over to you to tell me what you know about this show from a procedural standpoint or whatever. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I know, I know, I, I know a little bit more about it. I, I remember seeing it at the time it was on in 1997, and I don't know if I watched every episode of it. I certainly wasn't glued to it, shall we say? Okay. But it was the you know it 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 has that it has that kind of intriguing premise about it. In the time I hadn't you know I hadn't sort of come across Star Cops, but mm -hmm. obviously on Fusion Patrol. You know, you have talked about other series that try to meld the the science fiction with the the police procedural. So that that sort of interested me at the time. As I say, I wasn't necessarily hooked on it, and it mm -hmm. hasn't been very fondly remembered, shall we say? No, and yet that I do know. I I I was uh, I was curious to come back to it when I realised. Uh, recently that it has been written by Anthony Horowitz, who, as you say, he has become quite a well-known novelist. And I think he was already uh, known as an author by the time the show was made, although he, I don't think he was a particularly famous author unless you, you know, had kids, because I think most of his... Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I did notice that the Alex Ryder stuff, which is what I know him from... Um was starting in 2000 so it's after this yeah yeah that i mean that that kind of broke through to a, uh, i think i think you would know of alex Ryder even if you don't have kids whereas certainly i kind of haven't heard of his other kind of kids series but he is a he is i mean partly he's a very prolific writer and partly and this kind of i think goes a bit to um 
the 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 nature of the show he's quite uh high concept i guess so you mentioned that okay. he has written a number of james bond novels and he's written those in in recent years um i think i think the most recent was this may of 2022 right sure so uh where and there have been other authors uh often quite well-known authors writing james bond novels recently but they have tended to be one-off whereas the estate have asked him to come back and write some more likewise he's he's written um official sherlock holmes Mm. continuations and uh, another thing I, I came across recently, which probably isn't necessarily very well known, but is a series of, a series of books where the detective uh, Hawthorne has a sidekick who narrates who narrates the stories. Uh, the sidekick is Anthony Horowitz, <laughs> and it appealed to uh-huh. me because of that that issue I always had with the Sherlock Holmes thing, which was that before you even sort of got into it, it kind of spoiled the illusion by the fact that it didn't say John Watson on the front cover. It said some geezer called Arthur Conan Doyle. And so Horowitz actually wrote himself into into the books. And I mean, I'd encourage, it's again, not the best thing I've ever read, but I'd encourage people to pick it up if they're interested in these things. It kind of, it goes to the point that I think that that uh, Horowitz is quite interested in in some of these sort of, slightly wacky or eye-catching i guess um concepts so he doesn't write any episodes of bugs does he as far as i know he hasn't written any episodes of bugs there is a connection that i will come to at the point um where this show was made he'd been doing a lot of agatha christie poirot uh adaptations and Mm, okay He's also, I mean, I think Midsummer Murders, I have no idea whether that's made it across the pond. Yeah, yeah if you got Britbox, it has, yeah. <laughs> he, I mean, that, that, that's just a hugely long-running detective show over here. I suspect yeah. it's probably still going, and it's been going for 20-something series. It's not a creation of Horowitz because it's uh, adapted from uh, someone else's novel, but... He he essentially sort of kicked it all off. Also, I think around nineteen ninety seven. Did you um the, uh, just tangent here? Midsummer's Murders is set in England, right? Yeah, it is. Okay, just, and it's been going for going for twenty good. Okay, I, I need to take that back to my wife. She's always complaining about Death in Paradise, about how there's just so many murders that they can go for this show for ten, ten, eleven years, <laughs> and I'm like. Well, in England, I'm sure they've got shows that have been running twice as long, and they have a murder a week. So, I'm sure we're we're good. Oh <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's uh, Midsummer Murders and Silent Witness. No, a lot of people, a lot of people get murdered around uh, around these parts. Okay, just making sure. It's like it's not so bad. So we can go to the island. We can go. It's, we're not going to just automatically be killed on a tropical island if we if we go there. So, <laughs> I, I sorry, I derailed you there. Um, I'm I'm sort of I'm closing back in on the the show now here. There, there, obviously, you know, in terms of Fusion Patrol, we have been looking at bugs, and that has kind of given us a flavour of science fiction, UK British science fiction in the 1990s. And there is a connection here. Uh, you may have noticed the episode is directed by Brian Farnham, 
that's because this is made by Carnival Films, who I know for doing the Jeeves and Worcester adaptations of its Fry and Laurie, which I absolutely love. But I think we may have mentioned they also were the outfit behind Bugs and they made Poirot, which is probably where the connection with uh, Horowitz comes from. Right. So it's it's a it, there's this kind of slight sense that yeah there are there are crossovers here and there is a there is a kind of slightly um closeness not quite incestuousness but you know what i mean to the the world of high concept such as you know re- relatively speaking high concept um sci-fi mm. or fantasy dramas on british tv and and you know these are the kind of saturday evening entertainment type shows um, that that we see exemplified in 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 bugs, and now in this in crime traveller. Um, so I mean, I, I'm going to give some of my thoughts. I remember watching this in, literally years ago, but I can't tell you how many. Um, but at least five, and you know, with with a very uncritical eye of I'm just watching this because this is a show we're going to potentially do, and I remember, eh, I remember enjoying the episode. Um, and I remember from the time that I thought, you know, this is because time travel is tricky. I'm sure we've mentioned that on this show mm-hmm. many times, writing time travel without leaving ghastly plot holes or, or logic holes is extremely difficult. And I remember when I watched it, I thought cursorily speaking, this is pretty tight. This, 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 this one ties up about on par with, say, Blink, which is one of the, the examples where I think they've done a pretty good job of, of trying to loop that time around, even even with the wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey, uh, uh, get out of jail for any, any problems that you do actually encounter uh, in the thing. Watching it this time, a bit less so. <laughs> My, it's still... Fairly tight. It reminds me of it reminds me of Paradox, which we did oh so many years ago. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, and I, it, listeners who who may have heard it uh, or not, the recap Paradox was also a show where they were getting information from the future, but it was very scant information. And as the police would investigate these photos, which appeared to be related to a crime or disaster or something, uh, they would find that they were part of it. That no matter what they did, the pictures would come true. It was an inescapable uh, nature of the way you got information from the future that, that that was going to happen. And yet, as the episodes went by, they they took that and they intentionally broke it as a way to drive this the story, drive the mystery along. It's like, we think it works this way, but it turns out it doesn't actually work this way. And there were some interesting facets that I, I wish Paradox had gotten a second series. I'm thinking that this one is going to have to do the same thing as we go through in some way, but. Well, it's, uh, I mean, it certainly, it certainly limits it. I, 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 I think the, the kind of um, pre predestination interpretation mm-hmm. of time travel. Um, so yeah, I mean, Paradox is in my notes as well partly because it takes exactly, at least, you know, comparing first episode with first episode, it takes exactly the same attitude towards time travel. I also have it in my notes as Paradox does uh, certain things better 
than this. And uh, I don't, I kind of, I was restraining myself from you because these are two data points. And so it's not really fair to sort of extrapolate how much television improved in those 12 years. But I agree with you. The generally speaking, there are a couple of things and I, I, I want to come back and ask you about them. There are a couple of things that surprised me about this. But generally speaking, it is pretty tight on making the actual time travel element of it fit into the fit into the plot so that everything that has happened will have has happened if you see what i mean if i can, <laughs> i can't work out the tenses i should be using but in doing that i mean and it, it also managed to kind of maintain the kind of dramatic dynamic to the episode in the sense of we got reveals and surprises in the right places to maintain the tension but no but but where it did compromise in quite a big way was i felt that some of the actual detail the kind of things that might have made it feel a bit more authentic and more importantly some of the kind of what are the characters motivations when they do this thing mm -hmm. were missing it, it i i on first viewing maybe that that was that was where it didn't necessarily hit you so hard, but it then just starts to look like, ah, well, are they just doing that in order to kind of make the plot fit so that they will be doing that next time round, if you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. On on balance, I generally enjoyed it. I, I I didn't hate the hour that I spent or however many minutes it was uh, on the episode. And yes, no. bits of it I, I quite liked. So, you know, I would watch this. I'd go, yeah, I'm, I'm coming back to watch again. Um, on second go round, I did occasionally shout things at the TV. Like, we'll just start with all of the exposition that, that um, Holly gives about how time works. You know, if, if the doctor, alien from Gallifrey, from a race of beings that study time for millennia and have academies and studies and uh, go along and say, this is the way time works. We have a whole lot of practical experience with it. And they tell you something. All right. I'm going to take that a little bit more than Holly, who not saying she doesn't know her time stuff, but you do have to ask questions like, how do you know if you don't get back, you will be stuck in the loop of infinity. Who has ever been to the loop of infinity and returned to tell you that they are stuck in the loop of infinity? How do you know that's what happened to your dad? You know, how, how, how do you yeah. know time won't let you change things? And I can prove in this episode that things did change, that that, that is a lie <laughs> of a factual data point that says y y it's what it is. It's a screw up on the writer's part, but it it is uh, it demonstrates that. It's not quite, not quite solid. That there's room for room for error there, but how does she know these things? I don't know. Uh, you know, because you have to fail to to see what happens if you if you do it wrong. Yeah, I mean, yes. So the, just just on that, I think some of the details around that puzzled me. So, for example, the room itself is a time machine. Okay. <laughs> So it, it travels back in time, but it's a room. So it's traveling back uh -huh. 
in time to a space that is previously occupied by the same room. Yeah. Doctor Who is not terribly rigorous about this stuff, but it gets away with an awful lot by moving to a different place as well as a different time. Yeah. Whereas this, you're left wondering, well, what about the room that has been displaced? And all sorts I'm wondering of about what about then, the people that yes. are there? <laughs> well, well, quite. Who are, who, are, who are in another copy of the same room in the same time, but in, yeah, I... It's. I mean, it's everything. Everything. Everything within that room is is problematic. In that moment, in in the moment, you you walk into the room. Let's let's say it's a minute before noon. You walk into the room. She turns on the time machine, and she hits the button at exactly noon. So they were in the room from eleven fifty nine to noon, and then they go back in time, and they must relive that time. And they must return to that room before 12 noon. But if they arrive there by 11.59, they themselves must have been there arriving in the first place. So they would meet themselves every time. Well, I was willing to give them a little bit of latitude in the sense of the problem I've just described might be got around by saying, well, this room itself, when it's time traveling, because it's a time machine, somehow exists outside of space and time, i.e. until you actually step out of the time machine, you're not in the the current reality of eight hours ago, whatever it was. But I think that that is still going to give rise to some of the problems that you've just highlighted, given this other rather arbitrary rule of you've got to get back to the time machine at the time when you were in the, originally in the time machine when you left, which is, to take your example, if they go to the room at 11.59 and then travel back in time at 12, the key time that they need to be back in the, in the room is by 12. Yeah. But even if, even if it is somehow okay within the room, the margin for making an error is pretty small because I... I don't know about you, but when I'm like catching a train or something, I want to be, I mean, five minutes is probably the very minimum yeah. I want to be early. So they're going to turn up and, and, you know, bearing in mind, this isn't missing a train. This is being stuck in the loop of infinity. They're going to turn up. They're going to make sure they turn up before 12 o'clock, which means that right. they are highly likely to bump into themselves going to the room before they went back in time if you see what i mean yeah and yeah, so outside or inside yeah yeah it does it does it, it does seem awkward to, to say the least yeah. yeah that that was one of the ones that bugged me and another one where she says she says we're in a parallel dimension well if you're in a parallel dimension then does it matter if you meet yourself because that's not you it's a parallel you and if it's a parallel dimension, then how did you, how were you in your own, or was that another parallel person in your past that was the caterer? It, it just, it, <laughs> it really I, I, began I to, to, to niggle at me um, a lot. I can't necessarily see why it's a problem. The only thing that would have to happen would be you'd have to remember and have remembered in the first place, having met yourself. But there's not a huge leap between um, he he sees Holly at the station Mm -hmm. and they travel together. So, Oh no, hang on. They don't travel together. They didn't. And that, on that trip, they didn't. No, no. Okay. So 
Okay, well, I was about to think of it doesn't necessarily apply, but any, I mean, either way, it doesn't seem to me a, a, a huge difference. He, he 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 ends up with the memory of having seen something that happens in her future. So, yeah. Well, okay. So the, take a look at the caterers then. Uh, you know, what, where is the difference between meeting yourself? I mean, where do we draw this arbitrary line that Holly's going to tell me about sometime? Uh, touching yourself talking to yourself, seeing yourself mm-hmm. across a football field, um, interacting with yourself in some non-specific way. For example, Slade's actions are, unbeknownst to himself, influenced by himself in the first loop. Yes, yes. Because yes. he goes exactly. to interview himself, not knowing it's himself. So yes. he, he has interacted with himself, but whether or not he, he knew it or not. And, and it also puts that whole bit where Holly says, well, you can't travel to the future because the future hasn't been created yet or doesn't exist yet. It's like, but this whole, this whole sequence shows that it has because Slade saw you in the train station from the future. So the future must exist for you to have come back in. Ah! <laughs> I, I see I, that that's not necessarily that's what that was one of the things I wanted to ask you about that line. Um, don't be silly. It doesn't exist. What I she's guess. talking about there is the future of the main timeline, for want of a better phrase, not of her personal timeline. I mean, I don't know. I don't know whether they end up being 10 hours older or whatever. And they well, they, they reset. So. Oh yeah, yeah, the yeah. yeah. Reset, about that. Which yeah, of so course, they, so yes, we just toss in so your memory do. doesn't reset. Yeah, um, I, yeah. So I'm not sure I entirely understand the point of the reset. But there's a slightly bigger question there. Or again, maybe this is maybe this is going to come out in some episode that I don't remember. But the slightly bigger question for me there is: Why does a show in, which has this very deterministic um interpretation of what the effect of time travel would be need to still say that the future is open in this way we've we've discussed this many times in the past and there are there are conflicts with that kind of deterministic viewpoint and uh you know issues around free will and the like but Mm -hmm. That those kind of conflicts still apply because these people are traveling back into the past and then they are part of events where, in Holly's words, if something's happened, it will happen. I still think she's getting her tenses wrong, but okay. <laughs> so so why make the distinction? It seems kind of arbitrary. The 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 universe is set in the past and the future is you know, there's no difference between the future and the past other than your perspective on it. And you move when you're time traveling to a different perspective anyway. So why, why is that line there? I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, it, in a way it kind of, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it is, I guess it's just to set the premise up that says this show is not going to go into the future. We're not going to we're not going to travel to the future ever. Sure. Her understanding of yeah. time travel is that that there's nothing to get to. But you, but you could you could you could deal with that equally well by just saying this is a time machine that 
you know only goes to the past. I mean, we don't get any explanation of how the thing works, but you know, it could it could just be we for one thing, we only know or we know that it can only travel a few hours or days at the most into the past. As far as she knows. So there is already that well, yes, but there is already that arbitrary limitation on yeah. that. So, you know, if you're if you're setting the rules why not set those rules to include and it can only travel backwards in time? Another one that would be kind of interesting. There are, there are, there are bigger questions right. here that aren't, aren't really answered that I didn't feel I needed that answer. <laughs> okay. I, I'm, I'm thinking that you also have a time machine that for the purposes of this show, you know, you need to go back in time. Slade wants to figure out what the crime is. Well, what if he goes back in time randomly, not far enough to witness the crime? Well, yeah. Like, well, that was a wasted trip. <laughs> Just we sit here in the sofa and wait for us to return to the the present. Um, it, it's um, that I'm wondering if that randomness will have some meaning later on in an episode. I do know that Horowitz wrote all of the episodes, well, so you know anything he did in this I, episode I, might genuinely be setting up for a later episode. See, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think the randomness is probably a convenience for the writing in the sense that the randomness with which the TARDIS you know could not be controlled was was a way of inserting jeopardy into the show and I think that's particularly critical here because the I mean the concept is an absolutely genius one in some ways that if you're going to combine science fiction and crime and you know to to some degree a lot a, other than sort of procedural stuff, crime, certainly British crime drama, is is kind of mystery, whodunit mm. type stuff. Mm-hmm. And a time machine is, I mean, it's it's all time travel stuff in a way. It's all about using the clues to work out what happened in the past. A time machine cuts past all of that and just takes you straight to the past to see exactly what happens. But if you've got a if you've got a well functioning, well behaved time machine that can take you to exactly the day, hour and minute that you want to see, there really is going to be no difficulty at all in solving any crime. Right. Because you 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 have a vehicle there that will enable you to see exactly what you want. You don't have to worry about preservation of the evidence or anything because you'll be there at the time it happened. So the randomness is a way of preserving that kind of challenge <laughs> for our protagonists yeah yeah i mean i think i think it's probably it, it, you're right i think it's there partially for a jeopardy angle or for a thing that you know but i doubt very much there will ever be an instance where the random will not take them back far enough you know the crime happened yesterday all right let's try the time machine nope it took us back two hours oh well <laughs> not much we can do but you 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 hit on something that i wanted to talk oh, about okay. so i'm gonna deviate to it British detective shows, many, many British, Americans as well, but but many shows. Um, I think we were talking about Death in Paradise earlier. Here's an, a, a perfect example of it. You watch through the clue. You, you do see the death at the beginning, but you watch through the clues. You work through the detective. And eventually you get people telling their stories, which they always tell in actual flashback so that you can the, the audience can witness it. And then when the detective... Uh, reveals it at the end he has recreated it and again we see it in flashback it's it's how the detective proves how clever he is and 
solves the crime. And that's what's so satisfying about it. What's weird about this show is that you're exactly right. We are seeing the crime. Slade is seeing the crime. We don't need to do the flashback thing, but it also means Slade is not actually clever. He is he is not a smart detective. He's just watching it and going, oh, okay. And I can see how that would be actually quite unsatisfying for the audience repeatedly. It's like, well, he's he's not doing anything. He's just using her time machine to go back and watch it. And and how frustrating it would be as a cop, I assume. I'm 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 putting on my let's go with cops or good guys and want to help out and not being able to prevent a murder that you know is going to happen. I mean, Lombard's case, fine. That guy probably, you know, had it coming. But, you know, if he's if he's involved the children of, you know, if they call him back in time to find out what happened at a mass shooting at a kindergarten, it's going to be incredibly frustrating not to be able to stop that, which if Holly's rules are correct, he cannot do. And that puts out the potential for being a very unsatisfying story when our hero can't actually make a difference, or at least as things stand in this episode, it feels like I mean, yeah, again, I think that goes to the progression that you mentioned in Paradox. Yeah. That, you know, that, that, that was where that show went and why that show went there. And we shall have to wait and see what happens with crime traveler. Mm. Mm. Um, this seems like the moment for me to throw out that my wife, who watched this with me, does not like Jeff Slade. She does not like him one bit. <laughs> I'm not in a disagreement with her. He is not a likable cop protagonist to me. No, and he's not. And you're right. He's not a clever character. He's an opportunist. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's, it's like uh. I am, however, very, very impressed with British police forces. I had no clue you guys had science officers. <laughs> it's like that that sounds so cool. Somebody who does science? Don't tell me CSI cuz that's mostly BS. <laughs> well, no, I think you wouldn't be called uh, uh, as far as I'm aware, you wouldn't be called a a scene uh, a science officer, you'd be called a scene and a crime officer. Mm. Well, it definitely said science officer on her door. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it does. It does. But yeah, okay. I mean, that t- that takes us on to one of the other things that I was interested in about this episode, and it's slightly alternative universe in s- slightly similar ways to what we talked about in Bugs. So you know, some of our discussions around Bugs have highlighted the fact that there does not seem to be apparent uh, much of a kind of police force or indeed actually much of a kind of public sector because we saw saw prisons being uh, run entirely privately but without any apparent sort of public oversight <laughs> and this this kind of feels not quite the same i mean we've got police officers who have recognizable ranks mm-hmm. uh, so there's a dci and i'm assuming jeff slade is a dc i'm not sure it's actually spelled out at any point um yeah he's just listed as detective in the online yeah it's that it's that slightly and again it cut that to me that comes to the authenticity aspect of it it's that it's that detail and it's the fact that because because they're not so bothered about the those details you don't get that pleasing contrast between the kind of fantasy elements of it 
and something that grounds it in a way that makes it feel real. I, I would have felt real to me if I'd known that was London instead of just generic city. <laughs> but uh, you know, that that was that was something uh, we were corresponding about earlier, and I I do have a note uh, that I made about the fact that when they arrive in the opening scene outside the station where they're going to conduct this surveillance of their suspected murderer, there is a sign outside that says station. And I kind of interested in where things are filmed, particularly if stations pop up. So I, I I had a maybe slightly closer look than your average Saturday night audience member would, but it's inconceivable that you would have a station sign in this country, at least, where it didn't tell you the name of the station. I mean, it would say Reading Station, if it were Reading Station. And I don't recognise the exterior, but the interior definitely looked like Reading Station to me. I've spent a lot of time in Reading Station in the 90s, but changing trains, so I didn't have a chance to go outside. And um, it's a small thing, but again, it it goes to not... It's these broad strokes, I guess. It's just painting. All the audience needs to know is this is a station. So we don't need to kind of fill in the details. We don't need to make this a kind of photorealistic depiction. We just stick a sign up there, a bit like a a theatre set or whatever, and just say station. And that fills in its function in the plot. Whereas even if you had made up a station name, say we don't want it to be set in Reading. Okay, fine. You make up a station name like... Broad Street Station to borrow a made-up station from another show. That would still feel more real because it reflects what British stations are like. So, yeah. All right, I have to ask. Broad Street, made up? Oh, it's Spooks. Spook, it's MI5 for uh, Americans. How how long has Spooks been around? Spooks was, uh, the, I mean, this would have been three or four years after this show. Okay, well, I'm sure that I have my... Paul McCartney album from the 80s of Give My Regards to Broad Street. Well, it could well be a a, a nod to that. I, I didn't know if that was a I real place or not at the I, time. I just like, okay, broad, they're playing on Broadway, Broad Street. Okay. Well, there may, there may be a Broad Street station. There isn't a Broad Street station in London, which was the, the plot of a, a particular episode of Spooks. But uh, it, it, it's that kind of, it's that kind of idea of you, you don't call the station Broad Street station, you call it station. And the role, you know, the function that Holly is serving in the in the story is she's the boffin who's a colleague of Detective Slade. So we make her science officer, Holly, rather than necessarily worrying too much about what the correct job title would be for someone who might have her background and be working in a police force. <laughs> Temporal officer. <laughs> um... Why does she seem to care when they're going to fire Slade? Oh, she fancies him. Okay. Okay. I wasn't sure. It's kind of hard to tell. That's kind of hard to believe. It, that too. But, <laughs> you know, he's, very, he's very pretty. He's just, he's just stupid and unscrupulous. Yeah. Okay. All right. I, I, I didn't get that I from guess, their performance. I guess we... And I'm just like, well, let the only thing I can think of is that she wants to keep him around for some reason, but why? <laughs> oh no, I, th- I, I think that is that is the reason. Um, I guess we should say a little something about 
the casting. Mm. Michael French was uh, not that I really watched EastEnders, but I was sufficiently aware of it, or he was he was sufficiently a big enough character in the show and a long running enough character in the show for me to be aware that this was his first major role after leaving. It's often the case with soap stars, you know, they they do a stint on the show and then they they try to break out. And actually, I've no idea whether he did. I, I have to ask. Um, I assume I, I I don't watch EastEnders. I'm really not terribly familiar with EastEnders. I know enough about it culturally that EastEnders is, is lower class. And so this is about working class. Let's say working class people um, in, a, in a pub and and all the crime and, and things. I assume that Michael French was playing a thug because he sure as hell is not well cast as a policeman. I could see him as a gang guy or uh, maybe a drug dealer or what is your concept? What is your concept in class terms of what, a, what a uh, British policeman is like? Well, admittedly I, there, there is that, but it just doesn't, are you thinking they're all like Sherlock Holmes, or Roger are you thinking Moore, they're all yeah, like no, I, more thuggish <laughs> than he is? <laughs> I don't know. He just he just does not come off as policeman to me, and I'm and admittedly, it's that's bound to be influenced in stereotypes. But um, just he he feels like a he, maybe he could be a cop who's an undercover in an undercover gang sting or something. But I don't know. I I wouldn't. If he, because you think he he seems like a a thug. Oh yeah, yeah. He he just comes off as a right. like I would not want that guy to show up if I had my if I had had a crime and the police sent him along. I'm like, really? Is this guy going to just rob me? <laughs> just does <it's> not. <laughs> but then, wouldn't you? I mean, I I don't know who you might be, but like Di Burnside. Um, um, that's probably not. No, no. Uh, you know who you want? Uh, 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 Sam. Come on, the master, John John Sim. Yes, in, in um, Life on Mars. Mars. Yeah, he still kind of has that same look, and yet he doesn't look like a thug. <laughs> he comes off as competent. Um, I cannot think of his last name in that show. Okay. Well, Detective Guy Sam. Huh. Wow, because I have to watch Life on Mars again. <clears throat> um, I, I, th- I yeah, I mean, I think I think there may be a very different a different perception going on there i mean i my my issue with him is not whether he is believably cast as a police officer it's more general acting performance that's not good either (laughs) you know i and i i think this is yeah this is maybe an issue with kind of oh dear soaps and yeah i know that's not fair because if you actually look at some of the actors who who've come off quite long stints on soaps including you know quite a number of high profile now hollywood actors the you know guy pierce or margot robbie jesse, jesse birdsall did neighbors well Je- oh, jesse birdsall is the classic example of a soap coming coming off um oh lord what was it called the dreadful spanish one um nope it's completely slipped my didn't mind. know you had any spanish soaps so yeah <laughs> But it, it's it's the it's the same mm. same scenario. He he was doing bugs after that in order to 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 kind of 
I guess, partly raise his profile, but also partly demonstrate that he had a he could do more than just just the the kind of soap thing. I get. I guess he had a range. Yeah, I'm trying not to dismiss anyone who's in a soap, but I I guess and 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 it's not just my perception. I guess there is this thing about soaps that people perceive them partly because they are machines for turning out yeah. an episode or multiple episodes every single week uh, with large casts. They have to, you know, and 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 a turnover. So they they have to employ a lot of people. And they can't necessarily be quite as selective as, you know, the... I would guess the skill that they need to have kind of... is to be able to memorize your lines. That, you know, to, <laughs> to know the lines is probably more important than to Shakespeare the lines. <laughs> you know, it, it just... It, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, to a degree. So... El, El Dorado is the, is the name of the soap that Jesse... Jesse Birdsall was in. I've never heard of that one. So I, I mean, the obviously the other lead in. No, I mean El El Dorado was uh, El Dorado was quite a a short lived early nineties soap. I have a feeling that it was in some way connected with Verity Lambert. Hmm. I can't I can't remember if she was like an early producer on it or. I'll have to go away and uh, and look that up. Just you know, as a kind of random doctor who connection um but it was yes it was genuinely genuinely a pretty awful show yeah and some of some of these things you know if i'm being unkind some of these things you think well at least they kept some of these actors out of circulation <laughs> i i i what i watched this and i wondered if someone better than michael french had been in this what difference would it have made? And I think he it he needs charm, and I think Michael French brings that to some degree because he is an unsympathetic character. He I I agree. I don't like him. He is a chancer, and he is careless and self interested. And so you've got to have at least something attractive about him to compensate for that. Yeah, I guess it remains to be seen whether he manages to cross that line and and bring it back for me <laughs> or my wife even more yeah, so. Yeah. But I mean the so the the other lead in this show is of course Chloe Annette who I feel does bring something attractive and appealing. All right, fair enough. But is not necessarily any better an actor. Okay, I'll also agree with that one. Um and I I did look briefly at the Wikipedia on Michael French and Clarionette. And I mean, I just kind of like the first sentence or two where it says known for this, that, and the other. And Chloe Annette doesn't appear to have done much else except to stint on Red Dwarf. No, that, that, that is very true. So uh, around the same time she did, she, she did this show, she, the Red, Red Dwarf recast the role of uh, Christine Kachansky. Uh, to my disappointment, because I really liked Claire Grogan in the role, but she Claire Grogan had been a kind of occasional guest. Chloe Annette was became a regular member of the cast. I was obviously annoyed by the recasting. My views on that are known, but also she just was trying to do a comedy show and she wasn't remotely funny. <laughs> well, so here she is in a drama, <laughs> sort of. Melodrama. Yeah, she's slightly less bad at acting than she is at 
comic timing. Um, and the other the other thing that I have seen her in is there's only I think one episode of Jeeves and Worcester where she was actually rather good, but you understand the kind of the 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 limits of what of what's required in a, a Jeeves and Worcester role. Scullery and if you fit that world. Uh no, I think she was she was one of um Bertie's pals or Bertie's pals fiancés or something. I Okay. I, I can't re- I can't remember I can't remember who she is. Um because there's a certain amount of recasting in that show, to be fair. Um but yeah. She so she doesn't have the excuse of trying to break out of a soap. I think she is just a, a kind of at, at that point, she hasn't had a, a, a big experience in television. And after this show and Red Dwarf, she didn't really get much more experience in television. So yeah, so with a lacking two major leads, <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you that the one thing that I remember. Truly the one thing that I remember from the second episode. I, my, my, my entire memories of watching these two episodes is I kind of knew, you know, the first one I thought was a, a tight little thing where he goes back and kind of works out the murder. <clears throat> and the second one had proper Romana in it. And I was extremely disappointed that she the was The way killed. that William Hartnell is proper doctor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not so much in Doctor Who because there is Romana and then there's Tom Baker's girlfriend. And, uh, yeah, <clears throat> I have nothing against Lala Ward, actually, except that she replaced Mary Tam, and that's just inexcusable. Um, but that's all I remember. So, you know, I, I, I do remember an actor from this show, and it was neither of the leads. Just And it was a guest spot of somebody who got killed off in the early part of the episode so yeah have a couple other things here maybe so i want to point out i, I want to prove that they change time i'm gonna i'm gonna prove it they go back and slade gets wounded he comes back the wound is healed holly's excuse is you cannot change anything that happened in time and when you return here everything is reset okay that's that's she has made that pronouncement we don't know how factual it is Slade, who is one of the dumbest people I've ever seen on television, takes Holly out to an expensive dinner before he has cashed in his betting ticket, counting on the fact that he's going to have a lot of money to be able to pay for the dinner. And when he pulls the ticket out of his pocket, it's blank. And Holly explains, time doesn't work that way. It's not going to let you cheat. And I asked myself, then how did he steal that slip from the past? Because the paper is still missing from where it came from. It still exists and it's not there anymore. Why wouldn't it just be gone? Well, yes. Well, no, the paper, the paper has jumped in time. No, the paper hasn't jumped forward in time, has it? He went into, he went into a betting shop in the past and brought the paper with him in real time back into the, to the present. But, yeah, and now the the only the only the only thing that travelled in time was the knowledge about who was going to win the race. Yeah, well, did he take the ticket before? But how did he get the ticket before if it was blank? It does. Uh, well, no, there's a there's, <gasps> there's a question in my mind over whether it was blank when he came out of the betting shop, or was that something that happened inside the time machine? in the same way that his injury disappeared. Right. 
because that happened while they were traveling the paper was was on his person and it also was the result of you know the what was on that paper was the result of something that could only have happened as a result of the time travel as is its new location i, I mean it, it's kind of i don't know it's <laughs> like it it tells me that it, i think the paper should have his events did happen though so but it, but, it, but it's not that's not the only thing that that they change in the past the position of the paper is you know that's one thing they move in the past but also i forget the character's name but in holly's building oh uh they wreck his car in the past you know as, as a consequence like of their actions Damn. yeah his he he swerves and damages his car so you know they they their presence in the past has an effect on the the, the other, other things within the physical space not just that piece of paper but okay. his car and you know the 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 uh, napkin that they picked up from Giovanni's which they took back in time hmm. and left hmm. there hmm. So, so theoretically oh I, I can run it so theoretically he could have written the name of the winner on the napkin taken it back in time left it there and then he himself found it but then that would be changing time so he couldn't do it what would happen if no it wouldn't be changing time well if he found it and then bet on the horse but he didn't do that otherwise he wouldn't but but let's try well he wouldn't need to do that because he already knew what to bet on yeah because he would have found the the napkin but okay let's try this one he they go back in time uh they go back in time 24 hours let's say and Slade gets away from her because that doesn't strike me as going to be very hard for him to do, but he'll escape from her. He goes to a betting place, knowing who the winners of the races are. He bets on a race. He wins the race. He cashes out the money. He takes out a safety deposit box. He puts the money in a safety deposit box. And then he goes back, travels to the future. Is the money waiting for him in the box? Given that the box hasn't been into the into the time machine, it's hard to see how it wouldn't be in the box. But it's equally unlikely to actually be a problem because it's not contradicting anything that had happened in the <laughs> past past as opposed to the future past. However, Holly is in sort of... Though equally, I think you could say, had 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 he left the betting slip outside the time machine i mean just to take your example and simplify it quite a lot had he left it outside the time machine and then collected it on his way out would it still have had would he would he have then been able to cash it and presumably he would because it's not going to contradict anything unless what holly means is time specifically doesn't allow you to enrich yourself which would be a kind of slightly arbitrary intersection between i don't know the laws of economics and the laws of physics rather than being based purely on the physics alone the thing that that bugs me about that line time won't let you cheat gives time sentience gives time purpose yeah as if time is which it it needs because because those judgments are i mean say economics they're actually more kind of they're they're value-bound judgments what what does cheating mean? What do what you know? Why is enriching yourself this way a bad thing? Yeah, I 
I'd like to think that those are things that they've kind of set up for us to play with later on in the next seven episodes, because, um, you know, and obviously Slade's going to help her solve the mystery of her dad, maybe even rescue him. Has to be, has to be where that's going. But we, we kind of need to know more about how she knows what she knows about these things. Why didn't she go back in time and bet on horses and make a lot of money so she could pay for better time machine components? I think maybe she would have tried it. Well, presumably she has tried it. Otherwise, she wouldn't know that you can't cheat. Well, presumably. But then again, how does she know about the loop of infinity if, if she hasn't been there? Or her dad wasn't there and wrote her a letter about it or something and told her what it was like? Or Well, if we're going to ask these questions about how and why people have done things, I'm just going to run through some of my questions, just looping back to this thing about the, the time travel stuff being tight but the actual police procedural stuff being much less so. So kind of the first of my questions is, well, they're asking what was he, their suspected murderer, doing at the station? Mm -hmm. What was he doing at the station? They want to know. It's very important they discover why he's gone there. But how the hell do they know he was going to go there? I mean, why have they all turned up at the station? if they didn't think he was going to go there. And, and what kind of murderer keeps the murder knives that have the blood still on them and puts them in a train safety deposit box that or left luggage? Or whatever. Well, I mean, we know even, we know even less about his motivation. So yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. Is he dead? I, because we, they never, they actually say they never found the body. Oh, after. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we don't know. He should be. <laughs> I don't think you go off of at least three stories and into a river in a car and walk away, but, or swim away. (laughs) I certainly don't think we're going to see him again, but I, I think he's so peripheral to the episode that questions about his motivation are almost incidental. I don't know. To to me, the, the, the key questions are much less about why he, why he, for example, he runs away as to why is it that Slade decides to run after him? Why, when when he thinks they've been blown, does he think it's better to chase him rather than keep his distance? Or you know what? I mean, what does he hope to achieve by running after? I him? don't know. I, and and what was he ever hoping to achieve? It doesn't. Okay, so he, let's say that the guy's dead for the sake of argument. Slade broke protocol, chased the suspect, tore through the streets of the city, wrecked numerous cars. And yes, the bad guy did try to kill him. And it was the bad guy's actions that led to him flying off the thing and, and thing guy. But he wouldn't have tried to kill him if he hadn't been being chased. So it's, you know, chicken and the egg kind of thing. And rightly so, the chief inspector is like, you done screwed up. This is the last time you're fired. Why does that change just because they find the knives and it turns out the guy that he killed or led to the wrongful death of was a murderer. Is, is that is that acceptable? Once you know they're a murderer, it's all right then that you uh, that you wrecked all those cars and killed a guy? Because apparently it is. I, I, I mean, I think to a degree, yes, the answer is yes. In a lot of episodes, they will demonstrate the kind of political angles to these decisions. It's just that this isn't the focus of this story. So there's actually a, a more immediate problem, which is 
how come Chris, Grisham can just fire him? That in itself seems very odd. But then, you know, in a in a show where it was actually a question of, you know, more realistically, you have to go through certain processes in order to demonstrate that there's gross negligence on his part, and therefore, you know, all the HR stuff, in other words, and that has to be signed off by whoever. The political pressure would come to maybe say well, actually, we can't be seen to be firing someone who has taken a, a murder out of circulation. Uh, I mean, all, all of that is pretty problematic. And I think my answer to it is they just want... It's the very, very broad brush stuff. It's that they need a reason for the chase. So that's why Slade goes after him. There's no other reason for him to run after him. They need a scene where they're all surveilling a, a criminal at the station at the beginning so that's why they're at the station and when it is necessary later for them to have another question they go what well what was he doing at the station can do is the question even though that doesn't make any sense (laughs) no it doesn't and equally to have grisham sort of getting out of the car at the station and briefing her team by saying remember we have no evidence is a very odd thing for her to be doing, well, at all, but particularly there and then. But she's not briefing the team, she's briefing us as the audience. It's all about, you know, telling telling a story and not about constructing it as drama, other than drama in the sense of let's string together a bunch of cliches. And if you want those cliches, you know, in their purest form, take a look at that chase with you know with the taxis crashing into each oh, yeah. other very kind of hollywood movie and the driving through the vegetable stand i mean yeah yeah my only criticism is there wasn't what it, it should have been empty boxes for goodness sake it's yeah well this it's, was before brexit no it's very much by the numbers but uh when you had when you had fruits and vegetables it's not shells but got any others no i think i think that's probably my uh, the end of my complaints i I, th- I think my overall feeling about the show, I mean, it's a it's an OK episode. The show, based on what we've seen in this, is that it should be a lot better than an OK episode. I think the idea of a time machine being used to solve crimes is fantastic. And there were bits of it that felt like they were just part of the treatment that just hadn't been worked up into a kind of proper uh, you know a, a, a proper dramatic scene it's just you know have 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 some have some reason from being at the station or giving the chase or whatever we'll write that in later with another with another couple of passes yeah i mean this this should have been a this should have been a better series well i guess we'll see as we trail on do you offhand know the name of the next episode i believe that it's called Death in the Family. Uh, that sounds right. That sounds right. Romana is somebody's family. That's right. I remember that. Somebody's aunt. Well, it's going to be enjoyable. We have to watch that, and then it'll be in totally new territory. Simon, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure, as always. <laughs> Listeners, I hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of Fusion Patrol, we hope you'll consider supporting us at patreon.com slash fusionpatrol or buymeacoffee.com slash fusionpatrol. 
For our monthly Patreon subscribers, we're currently doing a special series on Season 2 of Babylon 5. There's over a decade of previous episodes available at FusionPatrol.com. Come join the conversation on our website or Twitter. You can also find some of our other works at SoundCloud.com slash FusionPatrol. Our music is Fight the Future by Amberwolf. This has been a Lone Locust production.